Welcome to Marketing People, the podcast where we talk to marketing people about how they market to people. I'm your host, James Richter, and today we have a live recording of the 2018 Walker Sands Just a Book event. Just a Book is in its fourth year and features a new author each year. Walker Sands will host about 100 marketers who all gather at the American Writers Museum in Chicago to hear the author talk about their book, ask questions, meet new people, and all that good stuff. This year's installment featured Joe Polizzi, co-author with Robert Rose of the book Killing Marketing, How Innovative Businesses Are Turning Marketing Cost Into Profit. Joe is the founder of Content Marketing Institute, which hosts Content Marketing World in Cleveland each year. He recently sold Content Marketing Institute and is now focused on his family life and philanthropy. Joe sat down with Walker Sands VP of Marketing, Courtney Beasley, to talk about killing marketing and the opportunities that await marketers who can make those exceptional connections with their audiences. Enjoy. Marketing people. Hello, Chicago. How are you? I came all the way from Cleveland to be here. It was rough, I got to tell you. <laughs> Tough travel day. Yeah, exactly. Well, do you want to give us a little background on yourself? I think a lot of people in the room are obviously familiar with you, but would you like to give a little background? Yeah, I, I started in what was called the custom publishing industry in the year 2000 at a B2B media company called Pent Media, which became uh, a number of other companies and is now Informa, uh, which weirdly enough just purchased UBM, which purchased Content Marketing Institute. So my, <laughs> the original department that I ran at Penton is side by side next to Content Marketing Institute. Can you believe that? This but I'm is not why you don't burn bridges. <laughs> so uh, left Penn Media in 2007, created uh, with actually with my my co-founder, my wife, uh, Content Marketing Institute. Uh, we're probably best known for Content Marketing World, which is held every Cleveland. It's the largest content marketing event. I believe this year they had around 4,000 awesome. people attend. And uh, I, uh, we, we hit all our goals. My wife and I hit all our goals with what we, what we wanted to do. And we sold the business in 2016. I stayed with Content Marketing Institute through the end of 2017. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I've been on sabbatical since January 1st. It has been the greatest year <laughs> ever. <laughs> if you ever get a chance not to do anything, I highly recommend it. Uh, in January, the first 30 days, I took a, an electronics-free sabbatical, so I went completely off of email and uh, I didn't carry around a phone. And it was the first, I was itchy the first couple days, but after that, I could see my, you know, if you have somebody telling you, like, where to pick up the kids and things like that. I highly recommend it. Uh, February, I did one of those bucket list trips with my dad. Uh, my dad had never been to Sicily to see his family. So we went to Sicily, Marsala, Sicily, and we met 60 of our cousins that we'd never met before. It was one of, it, you know, I, I could talk all day about that. That was something. And then after that, I've been spending time with my two teenage boys and just trying to be present after I don't want this to sound, it, I hadn't been as present as I probably could have been the previous decade, so I've been sort of trying to make up for lost time. And as you said, I think my last speaking gig was in May or June or something, so, but Anne recommended this event, and um, 
great. You've been great to work with and just happy to be here for, for an hour or two. That's awesome. Well, yeah, thank you. And hopefully we make coming out of sabbatical worthwhile today. Um, okay, so let's jump into the book here. Um, so obviously it's called Killing Marketing. We're all marketers. When I first read this title, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I really want to work with Joe, but what do we do? So I, obviously you don't want us to kill marketing. So why don't you dive in a little bit and tell us what you actually mean. Well, that's exactly, I want you to kill. I hate marketing. I absolutely hate it. The whole industry. Yeah, it's, it should go. <laughs> Uh, you know, when Robert Rose, my good friend and co-author, we were working, we'd been working on this book probably for five years and yeah. finally decided to do something about it. Um, I think what we've done as marketers is we're not utilizing marketing for what it was supposed to be. We're, as Peter Drucker says, we're supposed to make markets. And I think in a lot of cases, we work with mostly, at CMI, we work with mostly billion-dollar um, companies, marketers that work there. And most of the talk is about, hey, demand gen. We got to create more demand for, mar for sales. And it was almost like this service department has been created in a lot of ways. And as we go in, we just thought that we're, we're missing a lot of the opportunity to say, look, we can create whole new revenue lines if we look at this a little bit differently. So what the book goes into is just say, look at marketing for what it's supposed to be and for... If we think about we need to make markets, that means we need to grow new and different relationships with the audiences we're trying to target than ever before. And well, I'm sure we're going to talk about that, but that really means creating a media model. And I think if you go back in time and you look at some of the greatest brands of all time from you know, John Deere to Disney, that's what they've been able to do. And so the book talks a lot about those models, talks a lot about the Disney model and what they were able to do. And I think that, and we'll talk a little bit about the future, but I think if the, mar the role of marketing, the, uh, for all of you in marketing, is I think one of the top two or three positions in any enterprise that you're in, if you look at marketing differently. If you don't just go in and say, oh, we gotta create all this content because we gotta create this demand and leads and email lists and all the stuff that you're doing every day. But if you just step back for a little bit and say, wow, this is an opportunity for our company that we've never had before, then it could be something special. And that's what's, what excites me. I don't, I don't, I'm not into going in and say, oh, okay, we've gotta uh, increase demand by 100%. Honestly, not, not all that thrilling going in every day and figuring that out. But if you said, oh, my God, we could create a relationship with a group of people that we've never done before, and from that, five or six or seven or new products we never thought of could happen, I think that's where the opportunity is. Yeah, absolutely. Listening to your customer. And I'm glad you mentioned the Disney model because you link to the, the HBR image of that, and I love it. So you guys, if you haven't seen that, it is in the book. And even the um, Content Marketing Institute, I believe, channels are built based on that model. It is one of the coolest things I've seen and very applicable today that obviously was brilliant in what Disney was doing 60 years ago. Has anyone seen that? It's, oh, I was uh, it's, it. If you haven't seen it, it's a, it, it's, it was drawn by Walt Disney in 1957. He drew it himself. I actually have it hanging in my living room, believe it or not. <laughs> and it talks about what we talk about in the book, but Disney was doing it back in 57. If you think about why did Disney start creating films and why did they create some of the animation they created? You think, oh, okay, well, they were trying to monetize those things. Well, not really. What they were really trying to do was ultimately drive people to the parks. parks right. 
And then from that, other opportunities came about. So, I mean, if you think about what's Disney, is Disney a product company or a media company? Well, they're both. Uh, is Amazon a product company or media company? Well, they are both. Um, look at the fastest, most innovative companies in the world. What are they doing? They're doing both of those things. And I think that's where it's just hard if you're in marketing and you're trying to s sell widgets. You don't think about this opportunity. Right. And that's why you have to pull yourself back and Absolutely. give yourself that time. Yeah, and that's great too. I mean, you think that's the whole premise of the book is trying to figure out how to do that for for all of our companies. So um, kind of lends me into my next question about B2B versus B2C. You give a lot of really great examples throughout the entire book of both, but do you see different challenges in either or is the model pretty much the same? You're, you're targeting people of some kind. So the, the model is the same. If you're asking me what's easier, maybe it's just because I grew up in B2B. I think B2B is easier because we talk about in order to make this thing work, you have to grow a minimum viable audience. You have to figure out what that number is. At Content Marketing Institute, our minimum viable audience that we could start launching products and driving revenue was 10,000. That's what we believed and that's, that's the number that we ended up hitting and then we we grew our revenue lines from there. Well, if you're on the consumer side, if you are in the dentistry field, we were just talking about before, maybe your number is not that large. Maybe if you're a local dentist, maybe your number is 500, 750, 1,000. Uh, but if you are Apple, mm -hmm. your number is probably in the hundreds of thousands. If you're on YouTube, doing, you're creating a platform that's focused on some consumer area, it's going to be a lot more. It doesn't really matter. You have to find an area that what we call um, a content tilt or a differentiation area that no one else is talking about, and you have to deliver consistently to that area and yeah. build that audience. I don't care if you're consumer, B2B, it doesn't matter. It's still, still people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I do really like, I don't know if you want to walk through the model itself. I'm very much like a practical learner, like I want to hear it in practice. Yeah. Um, so if you could walk through, I think you give really great examples of how you've done this at CMI, like you've used the media model to adapt to what you guys do. So maybe if you want to run through some of those different ways that you've monetized yes. your audience. When, well, when we, so when I left Pet Media 2007, I had this amazing idea that we were going to be the e-harmony for content marketing. I mean, that's exactly what we called it. I thought it was brilliant. Like, oh, we're going to match up brands with agencies or content writers and sure. we'll put them together and it'll be tremendous. Well, uh, it didn't work uh, all that well because in 2009 I was looking for a job. As a, this didn't work out so well, but at the same time, fortunately, we were building the blog and we were building an audience of you know, 10, 15,000, 20,000. And then what I realized is I was trying to force a product on this audience that they really didn't need and I, and I wasn't listening, I was deaf to the opportunity that they were saying, oh, Joe, we, we would like training. Joe, would you come in for consulting? Joe, would, um, can I meet other content marketing pros so that I can learn from them and create a community or whatever? Like, oh my God, they're telling us what to create. So then from that point, we scrapped the eHarmony concept and we said, okay, well, we're going to focus on creating the, the leading destination for content marketers, which became Content Marketing Institute. We're going to develop a magazine called Chief Content um, Officer, focusing on the executive level, and we're going to create Content Marketing World, which will be the largest event. And so the idea was, oh, okay, largest event, maybe we can get 100, maybe 150 people to Cleveland. This was in 
2010 we set this goal. We had one room reserved at the Renaissance in Cleveland, thinking, okay, well, if I can just fill this room, it would be great. Well, that year, 660 people showed up, 1,000 the next year, 1,700, 2,500 from that point. But it it was because we built the audience first and then just listened to what their needs were and and followed it from there. Uh, Where... Where what most businesses start off doing wrong, and I know we're probably going to talk about some of this, but where, where we were successful is we focused on what are complex content issues that marketing professionals are, are dealing with. And those marketing professionals are probably in larger companies. Because the folks, like if you, if you know the folks at HubSpot, they do a really good job focusing on small businesses. Well they're not really focused on the large businesses. So that's where we said, that's where we have an opportunity. That, that would be our, what we would call our content tilt. So we focused on that early on and that probably helped us. And when we go into companies and we do an audit of their content, we realize they're, most of the time they're too broad. You're trying to, you're worried because, oh, we need a bigger audience. So let's go broad when the opportunity is as small. I, you can't go small enough with your niche. So really focus on how can we be the leading expert in the world at that for that particular audience. You can always broaden. You can never go back. So that's where the biggest mistake is, where I think we had the advantage coming up because we were focused on a very particular audience and a very particular tilt that no one was doing. Yeah. And we were able to, then once you find that and you get that minimum viable audience, then the growth rate is really fast because we ended up launching 12 or 13 different revenue generating products. So we went from, I mean, we're still a small business, but when we started in 2010, what did we do that year? 120,000 in revenue. And then three years later, we were at close to 10 million. So it's just really quick growth. And that was only because we had the audience. Yeah, and I mean, you talk a lot about listening to the customer, and it sounds like there's a lot of like consulting work and auditing work that you were doing on a one-off basis. But were there, I think, I don't know if you guys agree, but I don't always have my customers shooting from the roof, shouting from the rooftops, like what their problems are. Are there ways that we can listen better um, or engage better to find those particular pain points? Well, we we actually had a formalized process and we call setting up listening posts. And okay. this is what I learned from my mentor, Jim McDermott, when I was at Penton Media. He was adamant about how do we set up listening posts in the marketplace so we know what's going on in our industry. And that means, I mean, of course, you can use reputation management systems. You can work with your agency on those types of things. But really, you want to, okay, who's talking to our customers? How are we, do, how are we working with sales right now? Right. So get that information from sales. We did reader calls. When we still, and we called them reader calls 20 years ago. We still call them reader calls where every once in a while we would figure, okay, who's one of our... Um, subscribers to Chief Content Officer Magazine, let's give them a call. They'll think that's weird, but it's okay. it was okay. He said, hey, we're just calling to see how you're doing. How do you like the magazine? Um, what are we missing? What are we not? What, you, what are you challenged with? Those were incredibly important. We didn't do a lot of them. We did about five every two or three weeks. But though we, we saw opportunities that we never would have, would have seen. So what I would do, and what we, we do when we go in and we do an audit for another company, is say, okay, Who's got that information? Oh yeah, we can find it on Google, we can do the keywords, we can do all that stuff you're probably already doing. But are you tapped into your sales network? Who's talking to your customers? Exactly. Uh, Even talking to competitors when it makes sense to do that, any of your partners, get that information and then create a process for that coming in. And it sounds like it's 
challenging, but if you don't have to do a lot of it to get a really good feel for what's going on in the market. Yeah, that's great. And I do want to dive a little bit more into like the win, keep, grow, of course, the, you know, the revenue model um, and the savings model, but you just brought something else up that I think I had already um, kind of sent your way anyways. But there are kind of two major things, at least for me, when I was looking at this, it's one, marketing really needs to start leading from the core, right? Like we need to have exactly what you just said. We need to know what our salespeople are selling. We need to know what our, you know, customer, like the actual service that our customer is getting or the product um, based on business model. But, um, and then the, the other flip is kind of like, then you start with this whole like content productization, like selling kind of both things as we were talking about um, for the model. Where do you recommend starting? If you're a small team with limited resources, is there a place that you recommend? Because both require a certain amount of trust from the organization to make that leap. You know, it's like, we don't want the marketing team knowing what, you know, whatever. There's just boundaries set up, especially when you get to large organizations. So which, where do you recommend starting? If you're really going to do this and you're really serious about it, I wouldn't tell anybody in the organization you're doing <laughs> Because once they find out, they're going to want to kill it or they're going to wonder why you're doing it. So if you could go into stealth mode and create a little project, I'm, to- I'm not kidding. If you could put it off to the side. Generally, projects like this start from creating enough fear in the organization that we're missing out on something. So when we used to sell... Um, larger products into large B2B organizations, we used to do a anal- competitive analysis, and we was, especially around keywords, right? Okay, uh, these companies are having your lunch in these areas. Well, what do we need to do? Well, we need to be a thought leader in this area, this area, this area, so we need to develop a platform in that if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So that's scared. That, they're like, oh, we can't do that. We can't. We can't get in these keywords because we're not focusing on this. Okay, well, let's go ahead and do that. Where, but where most organizations fail is they get approval for something, whatever the topic is. So think about your audience and think about your topic that you want to, you want to launch. And then you, you start doing everything. You say, okay, we're going to do the blog. We're going to do the newsletter. We're going to do the podcast. We've got to do this stuff on Instagram. We have to do... Uh, something on Google+, Plus, even though there's no one at Google+, Plus, we're going to do these things. <laughs> so they end up doing five, seven, ten different things, cutting up content a million ways, when you should just do one thing really, really well. So when we went back and, well, whether we audited the most successful content marketing examples or go back to the most successful media examples, sure. all you have to do is look at how, how did the New York Times get started? How did Huffington Post get started? How did John Deere get started? Right. All, they just started by doing one thing really well. They focused on one topic, sent one particular way. Now, could that be ultimately a YouTube channel? Sure, it could. It could be an e-newsletter. It could be a blog. It could be a podcast. I'm big on podcasts these days. But do one thing really well. Grow your audience there and then diversify. Where we get into the problem, it's always, oh, we've got to do these three things. You'll never be great at three things at the same time. So figure out, create that minimum viable audience, and then you can diversify. And the only reason we could, at CMI, we launched the magazine and launched the event is because we already had the minimum viable audience with the blog. And we'd been doing that for three and a half years. And then we ended up launching other things. So that's where, when we go in and we'll do an audit in an organization, 99% of the time we're telling them to stop doing things, not to do more things. You just, you just can't be great doing 15 different content initiatives. And of course, you're gonna run into a 
sales group or somebody internally or somebody's pet project where, oh, we got to have that. Do we really have to have that? Right. Do we? No, we really don't. Let's focus on this over here and, and get this done and be the best in the world at it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. Yeah. Okay. So let's go a little bit into the, the model itself then, if, if you're good with that, the revenue model. So um, when keep grow, can you kind of talk us through what those things are? So once you create a minimum viable audience, whatever that is, so let's just think, let's say that you're starting an e-newsletter and it's B2B and you're thinking if we get 10,000 email subscribers, that's a minimum viable model. It, it could be 5,000, it could be 15,000. If you're B2C, it could be 50,000. That's fine. What you have to try to do first is not monetize this at first. What you will, what will most like, you'll have the pressure on your organization to try to sell to that, to try to put banners in that, to try to email that list a hundred times in order to get something. But if you can hold off until you get to that particular number, and then you can try, okay. First of all, let's say you're talking about the win category and you're like, okay, we're, we want to sell new products. That's any kind of new revenue generation, products or services, great. Maybe you already have them, maybe you don't. That's generally most of you, most organizations here, you're selling some product or service. It will fit in with your e-newsletter, your podcast program, your YouTube program, whatever you're doing. But you could also say, oh, our goal is just to keep our customers loyal. That's why where John Deere started the Furrow Magazine in exactly. 1897. Yeah. They started because they figure if we can deliver the best information in farming to these farmers, that they'll buy more John Deere. And guess what? Yes, they have for 120 years. And they hardly talk about themselves in it either. I mean, I think that that was part of the anecdote. Rarely. They don't sell anything in that. They're at least historic. I don't know what they're doing. I haven't looked at it in the last year. I've been busy. But <laughs> they... They ha they've been just focusing, how can we make farmers better, business owners, and better farmers? And that's what they're focused on. And that was all loyalty-driven to then grow their initial businesses. And then, you know, when you get, really get into it, you look at somebody like an Aero Electronics. Are any of you familiar with the Aero Electronics model? Aero Electronics, we talk about it in the book. We really break down the case study, and it's probably my favorite case study these days. Aero Electronics is a Fortune 119 company. I think they did $24, $25 billion dollars last year, they are the largest media company in the B2B electronic space. By far, they have 52 different media brands in that, some through organically grown, most of them actually purchased, which by the way is another opportunity that we talk about in the book because if you have the funds and you can find the funds, sometimes it's easier to go and buy the media product out in the space and bolt it on. So let's say that we're like with this event and say, right. hey, we're really good. We like this whole book thing and this whole marketing book author thing. It's like, oh, well, there's a podcast out there that that's all they do is marketing right. book authors. Maybe we'll go and purchase that and bring that into our fold. If you're not thinking about that right now, you're missing out. We should all be, we sh you should all have a cheat sheet of the opportunities to, to buy properties. But as marketers, we've never thought about it. We've never thought of ourselves as media companies, but you're all media companies. We've just been denying it. So the, there's an actual um, infographic, if you will, in the book, and it talks about there's, there's 10 different ways that you can generate revenue once you create this model. Some of it is off products and services, but a lot of it is media too. Yeah. Are you selling your partners into this? Are you selling advertising? Are you, are you, are you, do you have affiliate programs that you're running? The, 
I believe if you take this seriously, you will more than self-fund your marketing budget, but you'll create an excess of it. So if you, if you look at um, Exact Target was really good at this before they, got, they were bought out. They generated so much revenue from their Connections event. They were throwing off millions of dollars with the event that they put in all kinds of other efforts. Well, what could you do with a couple million extra dollars? But you just keep that into marketing instead of just keep growing that and growing that and growing that. And before you know it, you've got four or five, six. I mean, if you look at Aero Electronics model and their 52 uh, different properties, they have, they're throwing off in prop, profit in excess of $10 million a year. And now for a billion dollar company, is that a lot of money? Yes, it's still a lot of money <laughs> to have $10 million. So, they, so, so Victor Gao, who runs that program, doesn't have to go back and say, we need more and more marketing budget. He creates his own budget. He creates his own revenue streams, has his own sales force. Mm-hmm. You know, those types of things that we've never thought of before. But that's a Disney model. Yeah, that's exactly. the Amazon model that's already happened. I mean, look what Amazon's doing with Twitch. I mean, people haven't even seen the amazing thing. I mean, they haven't even begun to monetize. Tw- Twitch is going to... Anybody... Kids on Twitch, where you're watching video games. My kids are watching video game stuff on Twitch all the time. That they, if they wanted to, they could turn it on and generate a billion dollars off of that today. They're just not ready for that. I don't know if, what they're waiting for necessarily, but they're going to get there. So if you see what Netflix is doing and what Apple is doing and what Google's doing, whether or not you think it's Big Brother or wrong or whatever, it's happening and they're buying or creating the media that's all around us and um, the opportunities are for you and your industries if you want to take it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other side of that too is then the next model, right? Which is like the loyalty base. Like once you have this market built, obviously you can monetize them in all these ways, but there's so much savings that comes along with that too because you're not net new trying to find new customers. So do you want to dive into that one a little yeah, bit we, as well? Yeah, I mean, we were, we were talking about this a little bit before about right. the... Um, there is a financial company that we worked with that they want, they had, um, their clients were generally multimillionaires and they were um, advising them on what to do with that money. And they wanted to create a content marketing program and they're like, oh, we don't want to create all this content ourselves and we don't have the resources to do it and what do we do? And they decided, well, every month let's send them a book that we think is will truly help them be not only better investors, but just better leaders in general. So they focus on mostly leadership books. And every month they would send a book to all of their clients and they had a little cheat sheet from the, basically the marketing department or the content team sure. that said, here's what this book is about. Here's what we think are the top three takeaways. Enjoy the book. Well, this sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and they were doing that program for about two years and then started to measure things. And they found out that when their, those clients re-upped every year for their services, yeah. the number one reason that they listed was the book program. Cool. So that, which is wonderful and horrible at the same time, because <laughs> it wasn't their financial advice right. that did it. That was number two. Number one was this book program. But if you think about what an opportunity That's that cool. is, and by the way, that wasn't their own content. They sort of curated their own content from it because it was already out there in the field. So, I mean, those are the types of things that I don't know where, where, if we're thinking about sure. an opportunity like that. Yeah, sure. And I mean, a lot of this sounds like we just need to extend our thinking beyond like the current 
you know, mindset of where we are, but how much of this do you think is a, like a full departure, um, which for a lot of us it may be, right? Because there's a lot of us still kind of in the tactical base, like we're just kind of running these different programs. Sometimes they're not even really connected. As we are getting started, and of course there's, um, you know, I think at one point in the book it starts to talk about how there is almost a little bit of a dip sometimes. Like, you know, there's the learning curve of like, now we're building this audience, oh, and then we're going to start monetizing them. So there's a little bit of a dip in potential leads. Um, and obviously getting people on board for that is a risk, um, unless you just don't tell them that you're doing it. So what percentage would you recommend, or I mean, I don't know if we need to get that specific, but just getting started in general, like if we want to go back and people feel really inspired and want to try to start figuring out how to do this, how much time should we be spending on that versus like just completely abandoning everything else, even some stuff that we feel like from a demand gen perspective might be working? Yeah, it's, it's a tough question because it, it depends, but, sure. I'll, but I'll answer it this way. Okay. If you're not willing to give it at least 12 to 18 months of time and let the audience grow, Let's, let's, let's split it in the middle. Let's say 15 months. If you're only willing to give it six months, then don't, don't do it. Don't even try it. Just go keep doing your things. Keep advertising. Keep disrupting. Keep, uh, wh whatever you're trying to do, it's fine because it's going to take some time. And generally when we looked at, when we, we did our research study at CMI and figured out, okay, how long does it actually take? The average is between 12 and 18 months sometimes longer. For us, it took more than 24 months at CMI until we, we built that minimum viable audience. Now, if you're saying about resources, mm -hmm. if you go back and you're honest with yourself and you say, why the heck are we doing that program and why hasn't it been killed yet? When you start making the tough decisions, there's actually usually plenty of budget to go around. Sure. You just have to kill some things that some people are going to get mad at. You're going to disrupt them some things. Um, and then you have to set some realistic expectations. And that means set no expectations for the first year. And that's, so that means you have to really educate the people in your company that have the purse strings and send them. I mean, we did this at Penton all the time. We would, whoever were making the decisions in the companies, our client companies, we would send them articles all the time. We would give articles to the salespeople to say, oh, send this to your client. And just not from you, from other people, from other sources. And the great thing is there's all kinds of things that will substantiate what we're talking about here today, whether it's books, articles, podcasts. Give them to the people in your organization and say, this is what we're talking about. This We can really, really be great, but we have to play the long game. Do you think that Google's really worried about what they're going to do in the next three to six months? <laughs> no. They're, pl they're, pl they're looking out what they're going to be in 10 to 20 years. Right which, by the way, is horribly tough for everyone in this room. I totally get it. But if you, can, you, but if you set the real, some expectations with your audience and say, in six months, if you have to see something, we're looking for an audience build of this, and we'll be successful. And when we get to 12 months, we're looking for this, and we feel if we hit this number in 12 months, we can start to monetize so that it in month 15 to 18, we can start to generate this kind of direct revenue into the marketing department. Nobody's ever talked that way. Right. You don't talk about driving revenue directly in the marketing department. That's why it's a, it's a little thing in your market. You, you still have to drive demand. You still have to do all the things that you have to do as a marketer. So unfortunately right now, take 10%. You know, do, what is, Google says their employees did 10% or 20% of their time on personal things. What do they say? 20? Take 20%. Say it's your personal project. Put that on the side. Yeah. 
Give yourself 12 to 18 months. At the end of 18 months, if you do it right, you'll be a rock star and you can leave the company and go start your own business. <laughs> Take, a <sabbatical. laughs> Take a sabbatical, absolutely. <laughs> um, from a, a tools perspective, so I'm a, I'm a data person and I'm going to want to monetize obviously everything we're doing, track those numbers and make sure that we can iterate where we can. So what do you recommend? I mean, especially given budgets and things like that, do you have any favorite tools, platforms that we should be looking into? Well, I mean, I'm, my favorite, whether, whatever the latest, greatest of email, I'm all about email. Okay. And the reason why I'm still all about email is that if we look at our, let's say we look at our podcast audience or our YouTube audience or our audience on Facebook, we don't control any of those. I mean, if you have an audience, I talk about this, I mean, the full Facebook story is tragic when you think about, oh, IBM had one million people that were fans of their IBM Watson Facebook page, but when they send out a post now, less than 1% of those people actually see it. That means we have no control over that audience. So where do we have some control now? We have that control in email. So even though we're going to generate... Whatever audience, it doesn't matter. I don't care if it's podcast, Instagram, or whatever you is your platform of choice, whatever your one thing is, ultimately we're going to try to drive some information about them. That could be develop, ultimately developing an, an app or where you can get their information or, or email. Yeah. So I'm all about simplification, starting with, you know, you don't have to have the, the biggest, best. Ultimately, marketing automation mm-hmm. will absolutely come in handy. Yeah. But I don't think you, this is not a tools thing more than it is a strategic change in focus. Yeah, that's fair. So, okay. but so if they, so you're probably more up on the tools. I don't even know what's happened since January. If any new tools have come out, I don't even, maybe yeah. some new things have. Yeah. Yeah, the Indians are in the playoffs. That I know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about the Cubs. That's kind of a bummer. A rough night last night. Yeah. But you, um, had your, you had your World Series in 16. That's true. Yeah. That was a, Miserable day for me. <laughs> That's true. Um, okay, I mean, I think we can open it up to a couple questions in the audience. If anybody has any, I can um, run a microphone around to you. You want to come? <laughs> anybody have any questions? Come on, there's got to be some. There you go. Hi. Uh, how do you set up a successful team to, to make this happen, if, especially if you're a middle or small size company? So for a small company... If you're with a small company, and you mentioned this before, Courtney, about maybe we don't have the resources, which I'm sure a lot of you are, I mean, marketing people don't say, I have too much budget. I mean, do you? you, Are you in that, oh my God, I have too much money, I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm a big fan of the 1099 contractor model. You can find the greatest talent out there now, probably more than ever before, um, and I call it fleecing the mastheads. Um, if, you needed a, if you need a writer or an editorial director over a certain area, I would go and find out who, what's the leading media property in that industry and then go check the masthead. Most of those people do not work for that company. They're looking for new opportunities and you probably will be able to pay them more than what they're getting at the media company. And because, you know, let's be honest, media companies don't pay the best anymore. So... I would start with that contractor model, and actually you could probably go a really long time and use almost all contractors. So I'll let you in on a little secret. So when we started Caltech Marketing Institute, we had two employees. This is in 2007, my wife and myself. And when we sold, 
in 2016, we had two employees. And we worked with about 50 freelancers. And about 26 were somewhat full-time. They had business cards. They felt like part of the team. But we were able to work that model. And that's what a lot of content teams are working with now. Where I think a lot of, a lot of them get stuck is, oh, my God, I can't open up a new, new hire for this. Don't. Don't even think about it. Don't worry about it. No, ultimately, if those are the rules of your company that you have to, still start with a freelance model, check out their work, see how they're doing, and have them grow into it, and then hire, and that's how I would position it with them if that's what you want to do. But start with, I mean, I would say who you're going to start with, the editorial director, probably, somebody taking the content lead. You probably already have the technology people in your company to, the, to do all that. You probably have a social person already. So build in who's going to lead that content strategy and build that team. It starts with a great editorial director. So that's what I would start with. Anybody else? Hi. Here, here. Hi, what advice do you have for communicating with the sales team and breaking down barriers that can sometimes exist between sales and marketing? I wouldn't even communicate with them at all. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, when you get to a certain point in life when you don't care at all what you say anymore or how it affects people, that's where I'm at. Um, no. The, have you ever seen the uh, case study at Xerox? that they did worked with their sales team. I don't even know what that group is. Xerox, they changed, the, the, this group at Xerox changed their name to something else, but when we worked with them, they were Xerox, and they were having a problem because they were creating large amounts of marketing content, and the sales team, they weren't using any of it. And actually, I think most of the sales team didn't even know it was available. So what they did is every week, they created... Here's the content well, that will help you sell more, basically. And they took uh, little abstracts of the content and say, we created this white paper. Here's three ways that you can use it. We created this. Here's this podcast we put out. Here's how we would recommend using it. If you can get them to use one of those things. So their open rate on their email really went because it was all about how you can sell more with this content. And generally what we see is you just somebody threw up on SharePoint and basically, we're throwing up on SharePoint is what we're doing. Here's all this marketing, marketing, marketing content. And so here's a really interesting story. I'm gonna, hopefully, it's not going to bore you, but I thought it was fascinating. One of the largest companies in the world, let's just say top 10 technology company in the world, we were at their sales and marketing meeting. And one of the, we were talking about this exact issue. And we found out that a lot of the content the marketing team was creating wasn't being used at all. And they had the, the lead sales director who was selling, in charge of selling something like 500 million or 750 million. They, they asked this guy, they said, well, how are you using this content? And he says, I, 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 he says, I actually created a spam filter so that any emails from that I don't even see. And he says, so what are you doing? He says, well, he didn't want to say it, and we really said, oh, come on, it's okay. We need to know this. We need to audit what we're doing so we can fix this. He said, well, I hired my own agency. Not kidding. 
We're creating all our own content. I've got, he, he had his own content plan, ebooks, white papers. He was going to create a podcast, all kinds of stuff that he was creating to help him sell more. And he was totally ignoring what marketing. So, which is tra- funny and tragic at the same time. So first of all, I would probably do an audit of what your salespeople are using. It was just going to be really hard. And if you have to, you might want to have your, either you or somebody else go on a sales call. Like, go on, go find them, go on a trip. Just see how they communicate. Don't have to say anything. Just say, I just want to see how you're communicating. And then get into those conversations and say, are you using any of this? Is this any of this helpful to you? So if you can figure that out, and then you can communicate back to them like they did at Xerox and said, here's, because they did all that stuff and found out, okay, well, we've got a problem. And they put this together and said, okay, well, we, they're not using any of this content, but this is what they might use. Well, let's package it in a way that they'll actually use it. So if that's at all helpful, just make it easy. Salespeople are only worried about one thing and that's the next sale. So if, if you're as much as we love our content and we think it's so fantastic, they don't care. So you just have to make them care. So, uh, so create your own content program. And anybody know Don Schultz, father of integrated marketing communications? If you haven't read IMC the book? Go ahead and do that. He said, if you're going to create a marketing program in your company, the first place you start is internal communications. How are you going to communicate internally? And then once you build that community internally, then we can focus on building an audience outside. Awesome. Any more? Jennifer. Um, so piggybacking off of that question, I wanted to know a little bit more about how to uh, share the content more externally. How do you make sure that your customers and prospects are getting the content that you're creating? Well, the first thing is to have them actually subscribe to it instead of pushing it to them. Um, what generally happens in most companies is some initiative will happen and then we start blasting the customers with it. It could be great content, but because we went that direction and blasted them with it, they opt out or ignore it and then it goes to spam and you've lost them. So, so treat your, so let's say you're targeting your customers, treat them like you have to have them subscribe. You can send them the email and say you're launching this, but give them the opportunity to subscribe and work on those things and other ways that you communicate with them. And that's actually a great place to get the salespeople involved too. Hey, are you subscribed to our newsletter? This, was, this issue came up here. Of course, the, the salespeople have to be educated on this. Hey, would you subscribe or can I subscribe you? Okay, you'll get this double opt-in, those types of things. So I think that's where we've missed out, where we're adding people to a list instead of actually getting them to subscribe via email in some way. So I would focus on doing that. And then once you do that, then you've got all the statistics and you know exactly what your open rate is. You know, not perfect. We do the best we can. But then you can, you can figure out, okay, what's being read and what's not. And we consistently recommend doing a content audit of all of your content. So if it's on the web, you can actually obviously go to it. What's being read, what's not. What content do we need to decommission? What content do we have to update? Hopefully you're doing that in all of your, on your, all your websites. You do a blog post, as soon as you write that, you should set it up in your, uh, whether you're using WordPress or whatever, so this needs to be updated in six months, nine months, this needs to go to bed in a year, whatever the case is, and focus on that. So the goal would be to 
treat them like they haven't subscribed to anything. Just because they're customers doesn't mean they want to get your content. So how do you create that next level opportunity? Does that answer your question? Or you sure? You don't, you're looking at me like, I don't think so. You still upset about last night, you Cubs fan? You're not a Cubs fan? <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to try again. Let's say that you get them to subscribe. And you, let's say you hit your 10,000 number and you have your, these, this great audience customer group that's subscribing and they're engaging and they're, then that's when you go and you diversify into other areas and figure out, okay, because what the, what the data told us at CMI and what the, when we go and we do research with other companies, the, your magic number is generally three to create the best customer who's spending the most money or the most loyal or whatever your goal is, they should be engaging in three different pieces of content, three different types of content with you. Maybe they go to your event, maybe they're on your webinars, maybe they're, they're um, reading your e-newsletter, they're on your podcast, whatever, three, magazine, whatever, you name it. So get to those three levels and then when you so you, you've done great on the e-newsletter, then you might consider, okay, we've got our minimum viable audience here, now we can diversify in another area, just like a media, this is all media, just like a media company does. And then you should be measuring that the whole time. So it, it's hopefully you have this set up with your financial system or you, you can at least get the database to find out, okay, if somebody's signed up to the e-newsletter and reads it, what do they spend with us? If they're signed up to e-newsletter and the magazine, what do they spend with us? So we found out at CMI, our best yielding customers signed up to three different things. And it just was curious to me that it didn't matter which three. It could be webinar, podcast, email. It could be magazine, event, training, whatever it was. So that's where I would figure out. And then you can put a number to it. And then that's when you can play with the model and say, oh, my God, well, if we've got all these people that are just on one or two, if we get one or two up to three, that increases our yield by 60%. And then you can really have, some, have a lot of fun. And then you can go back to the powers that be in the organization and say, well, if we did this, this is what we could see. This is what the numbers tell us. We just need to create more of these one to two to threes. Is that better? Uh, I think you're lying to me, but that's okay. <laughs> um, okay, uh, I'm going to ask one last question, and then Joe is going to be here to sign your books. He can answer answer questions for you guys one off for a little bit if you'd like. Um, but Robert ends the book with really great quotes about the future from brilliant marketers about what they think marketing is going to be like for us. So let's do the same. What do you think is next for us? What's the future of marketing look like? Well, we talk about this. Um, obviously, we talk about this in the book. But marketing started, if we look at um, marketing started as media. Outside of interruption marketing, which has been here since the dawn of time, and will continue to go on, and we'll continue to see big old billboards, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I think advertising always has its place. But if you think about, okay, well, how did, how did Ben Franklin make all of his money? Well, he, he wanted to grow his printing business, so what did he do? He created Poor Richard's Almanac so that people would buy the book, that they would then help us. See, people don't think about this kind of thing. That's the way... How did, how did John Deere start selling all those tractors? They started a magazine. It's just very simple. So if you think about maybe we're, we're using different forms of media, but 
the media model is insufficient if you just look at selling advertising for media today. But if you look at the way that the New York Times has changed their model and Huffington Post and other media companies, what are they doing? They're selling products. Uh, I would anticipate in the next three years that most, more of BuzzFeed's revenue comes from product sales than advertising sales. They sell slow cookers. They, they sell, I mean, look on BuzzFeed. They sell all kinds of, for some reason, home goods that you can buy at Target. Go figure. Tasty. Exactly. So, which is a, which is a great program. That's where we're headed, and it's, it's going to be different in every industry, but if, when I think about where the most innovative companies are going, like the aeroelectronics of the world, because you've got to remember, the products that you're selling right now, in five years, are you going to sell those products to them? I mean, if you look at 3Ms, I think 60% of their, new re their, their revenue comes from products launched in the last five years, and they sell thousands of different products at, at 3M. So that's going to happen to your organization. Well, what do we do with that? Well, if we create a relationship with this audience, we can continue to sell them whatever. But we just don't think about this. We always think about, oh, we get to sell this product or this suite of products. Well, you're not going to be selling this suite of products in the next few years. So what do we do about that? Well, let's know that audience better than any, anyone else, and that'll come from marketing because we can understand them better than anyone else and create all these audience groups. So. Where I see your companies in 5, 10, 20 years, you're just, you're just little media companies and you're driving revenue in 10 different ways. Are you selling products and services? Yes. Are you selling advertising and sponsorship service? Absolutely you are. Are you selling affiliates? Absolutely. I mean, New York Times fastest growing revenue right now is coming from affiliate revenue. Um, those types of things are happening. It's just you have to be open to that possibility. And marketing generally hasn't had um, the seat at the table to make those kinds of decisions. I tell you what though, if you have the ears of an audience and you have the audience in your industry, you will absolutely get a seat at the table because what you have is gold. You have created an asset in the organization. And I think that's where, that's what I would look at. And I mean, Amazon is already there. Amazon is the, the most valuable company in the world right now. I think they just passed Apple, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, take some time and look at all the audiences they've created and how much they're spending on original content, repurposed content. It's brilliant what they've done. Um, and we think, oh, that's Amazon. We can't do that. But, but it's happening. In, I mean, we were able to do it on a very small scale at Content Marketing Institute, you can do it in your organization, and uh, it's, it makes marketing actually more, more exciting, and I think that's where the future is going. That's awesome. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Big thanks to Joe Polizzi for sharing his content marketing wisdom with us, and everyone who made it out to the Just a Book event. In our next episode, I'll be in conversation with Lauren Nordgren, a professor of management and organizations at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. We talk about creativity, brainstorming, and the app he created to help organizations unlock the best ideas possible. Until then, be sure to subscribe to Marketing People on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and tell a friend or colleague about the podcast. 